Thank you. I am Barbara from Montgomery, Alabama, grateful recovering Eleanor. Uh, I wanted to get here yesterday by 2 o'clock so I could get in on most of your programs. I did get here for the 8 o'clock session, so I didn't miss everything. But yesterday turned into a hectic day for me. I woke up with my face like this and uh, have an infected bone in my cheek from a tooth that has to come out, and I am in dentistry. Want this one? Either one? What one? I'm Alan, and I do what I'm told. Anybody believe that? Raise your hand. Okay. And, uh, of course, they wanted to do something right away, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm leaving town. So that's why you see me with these glasses on. Believe me, I look worse with them off. I have a shiner. Told Russell I was going to tell you all I was a battered wife, because that's what I looked like. But I look a little better today. But if you'll excuse the dark glasses, I'll appreciate it. Now, in Al-Anon, we tell our story very much the same way they do in AA. How it was, what happened, and how it is now. Now, there are people here that have heard my story. And they're going to hear the same story again because how it was is how it was. And it's one of the first things you learn in Al-Anon is that you cannot change what is past. What happened is what happened. How it is now continues to change and always changes for the better as long as I stay with my program. And I want to emphasize that, as long as I stay with my program. I have learned that I can allow the alcoholic in my life to work his own program. So that's given me a lot of spare time to work my own, because early on I thought I had to keep track of him and make sure he was working his program properly, and I didn't really have a lot of time to work my own. I went to Al-Anon for a long time thinking I was there to find out how to deal with my alcoholic. I did not know I was there for myself. Once I found that out, and once I learned that there was not an elevator to serenity, that I had to use the steps. I started to get well. Another exciting thing that happened to me yesterday was I had a new granddaughter. Number 13. I've had three new ones this year. <clears throat> but the things that Al-Anon has helped me with this year are my mother in uh, February had congestive heart failure. And uh, my brother has been there, went immediately and stayed for a few weeks. My sister has been there. My turn comes up in two weeks. And although I have learned, and my alcoholic has told me this, I have learned how to examine myself and how to deal with others and with myself in every instance except with my mother who still makes me feel two years old and both my brother and my sister have called me since they were there and said Barbara don't go 
But Barbara's going, and she's taking her one-day-at-a-time book with her, and she's going to some Al-Anon meetings while she's there. And a week after, we heard that Mother had congestive heart failure, and she lives alone down in the Florida Keys, and I want to bring her to Montgomery, but she won't come. She'll say, you know, I'm the mother, you're the child, I'll live where I want to live. But she has only three children and expects one of us to be there all the time. And it's not possible for us. But we'll work that out. I have a daughter, Amy, who is married and has three small children. Last week, she has two girls that last week, one was four and one was three, and she has a little boy that was born in January. Within two days of the call about my mother, Amy called. Her little three-year-old had uh, was losing her balance all the time. She thought she had an ear infection. She said, I've got to take her to the doctor. I should have taken her before, but with the new baby, she doesn't seem to hurt or anything, so... I just put it off, but she's really hurting herself, falling down. I've got to take her. Within 30 minutes of the time that she took that baby into the doctor's office, the doctor said, I believe your child has a brain tumor. They did a CAT scan, and she does not. But they tested her Wednesday for muscular dystrophy, and I asked you to pray for that child for me. And now I'm going to tell you, my story. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do all that. I have eight children, and I'm not going to tell you about all of them. Some of you know my Alateen children. Three of my children are fortunate enough to be young enough when I found Al-Anon to go to Alateen. And I'm not going to tell you it was easy to get them there because it was not. They went to me with an, to an Al-Anon meeting with me one, one time when they had been out of town with my oldest child and I hadn't seen them for two weeks. I went to pick them up and said, I need to go to an Al-Anon meeting. And they said, but Mom, you just got here and we haven't seen you for two weeks. I said, come with. Come with me. So my oldest daughter and my three youngest children came with me to an Al-Anon meeting. We lived in Cincinnati at the time. And after that meeting, my son, Timothy, who some of you have heard speak, said, Mom, I want to go to Alateen. You've been begging me to go to Alateen, and I've been telling you, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I just want to get on with a normal life, but I need Alateen. Because of that Al-Anon meeting where they talked about letting go and letting God. And I had three <clears throat> terrific little Alateens <clears throat> that are very well-adjusted human beings today. And I thank Alateen for that. Our first years of marriage, there was no drinking. Well, people were kicked out of the seminary for drinking, and we were in seminary. Our first... Three years in the ministry. So after our five years of seminary, there was no drinking. I had five children, but there was no drinking. 
We went off from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we spent the first two and a half years of our ministry with five children to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, my alcoholic was to serve a congregation there that was the largest in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod at the time. We had 2,600 members. And it was a professional congregation, an urban professional congregation. And when we got there, one of the architects in the congregation invited us to dinner in his home. And we went. And he served martinis. Now, Russell had one, and he said, I liked that. I'm going to have another one. And our first night in Milwaukee, as the new pastor and his wife, Russell, got drunk. And I had never seen Russell drunk. And I felt sorry for him. And I was embarrassed for him. That's good, Al-Anon, too. Get embarrassed first. I'll tell you what, that's one of the greatest gifts you've given me, that I need never be embarrassed by another person's behavior, that I am responsible for me. But you'll learn in my story that it took me a long time to learn any of that good stuff. We were in Milwaukee for four years, and it was during those four years that we decided, well, we're going to have to entertain, so we're going to have to start keeping liquor in the house. We didn't have liquor in the house before that for entertaining. And those four years in Milwaukee, that's why liquor was in the house, for entertaining. We moved to northern Illinois four years later with six children. And while we were moving in, Russell said, now wait a minute before you unpack anything and uh, we get things put away, let's decide where we're going to have the liquor cabinet. Well, we didn't have a liquor cabinet. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, just let me choose a cupboard first, you know, where it's handy when we entertain that I don't have to get in that cupboard above the refrigerator where it always was. It really was a nuisance to get up there. So he chose his cabinet. Uh, two years later, he had a bigger one made. It wasn't big enough, but that's, he chose his cabinet. And uh, we started entertaining, and we were entertained. And then we started having cocktails when we weren't entertaining. You know, we thought, we're really getting cool, you know, really up there. He's having cocktails before dinner, and thought that was neat. And then I noticed Russell was beginning to drink. I'd come home at noon and have a drink. Then I noticed he was having a beer instead of orange juice with his breakfast. Then I noticed he wasn't having any breakfast. But I also noticed that there was something wrong in our relationship. We had seven children now, and two of them were off to college. And I thought, well, that's the way it is. You know, we just don't have all these little kids around here anymore. Uh, we have children in college. And things don't stay the same, I guess. But I really didn't like what had happened to our relationship, but did not connect it with the alcohol. The story I'm telling you about alcohol is all in looking back. 
Now, I didn't stay that way. There came a time when I knew it was the alcohol. And I knew it was my duty to make him stop drinking it. But at this time, on the New Year's Eve of 1969, I thought things are going to get better. I have something wonderful to tell Russell. He's going to be all excited. So at the stroke of midnight, 1968, at the stroke of midnight, with the church bells ringing, I said, Russell, it's going to be a marvelous year. I'm going to have a baby. And he was not thrilled. I mean he was not thrilled. Now, I don't want you to think that I supposed that having a baby was going to fix our relationship. After you've had seven, you know they don't fix relationships. But I was delighted that we were going to have another child. And I don't know. I've, you know, I've fourth-stepped. I've done everything else. Both Russell and I adore that now 16-year-old child. But why I was so ecstatic about having her, like I'd never had one, I don't know, except I needed something to fill that gap that I knew was there, which is a poor reason to have a baby. And if I did it for that reason, I wasn't conscious of it. But when that baby was born, I thought everything was going to be fine. Russell came in the day after she was born and said, I'm so glad this baby's been born. And I said, oh, Russell, I knew you would feel that way eventually. He said, well, I sure do because you were such a bitch while you carried her. And I was a bitch from that day on. That was my name. By the time Sarah Elizabeth was two years old, we were in bad trouble with alcohol. Really, really bad trouble. A lot of things had happened in our life that I was now able to contribute to alcohol. And a lot of worse things were going to happen. I knew it. One day, I went into the living room, woke Russell from a drunk, told him I was taking him to the hospital, that he needed help, and I was going to see that he got it. I had called a psychiatrist, said I was bringing my husband over. He went with me. And I sat there and I cried for two hours telling this psychiatrist all the things that were happening in our lives. And I don't mean I tears running down my cheeks. I mean boo-hoo, crying. And he looked at Russell, who had put his collar on before we left, and said, Well, Russell, what do you have to say about this? And Russell shook his head and said, Dr. Henry... I am so worried about Barbara. She behaves like this all the time. She has the children all upset. She has my congregation all upset. Could you keep her here and help her? And he did. And I resented that. But I did get out with a clean bill of health. He said, oh, you know... He said, you just needed a rest, Barbara. I said, well, did I have a nervous breakdown? No. Well, am I a manic depressive? No. He said, we can't find a label for you. 
You just needed to be here a while, I, uh, but I suggest you don't go home to Russell. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, we've talked with Russell. And Russell doesn't intend to change any of the things he does. And I don't think you could handle it. And I said, well, I'm going home to Russell. Russell is sick, and I'm going home and take care of him. See, because I knew Russell was sick at this point. A point later on, I decided he wasn't sick. He was just a son of a bitch. But at this point, I thought he was sick. And I thought I could handle it. And it was my duty to handle it. So I went home. I'd been home for six months when Russell had a wedding for one of the lawyers in town, 50 miles, 60 miles outside our town. He was marrying a girl from another town, but they wanted Russell to have the wedding. And it was February, and there was a blizzard. And we left about noon on Saturday to go to that wedding. Russell had the wedding. We went to the reception. Now, this is Illinois. They have liquid receptions, open bar receptions. After Russell had had a few drinks, I thought it was my duty to tell him that he'd had enough to drink. That was on my schedule of things to do for the day. And he said, listen, just because you don't know how to have a good time, leave me alone. Well, now, at this point, I did not know how to have a good time. I was totally obsessed with another person's illness. Totally obsessed. When I got up in the morning, I didn't say, well, it's a nice morning. What will I do with the kids today? What will I do for Barbara today? I got up and said, oh, my God, another day. What will Russell do today and what will I do about it? That was my life. So I thought at this point, at this wedding reception, it was time to take him home. Because really it was Saturday evening, and at this point in his alcoholism, he had been locking himself in his room by the middle of the afternoon on Saturday, so he wasn't so hungover on Sunday morning. And it was lock-up time. That was a deep, dark family secret. I don't know how long I stayed out in that car. Pretty soon the parking lot started to empty out, so I thought maybe things were breaking up. Now, I stayed out there and cried. I decided I'd better go in, see what was happening. So I went in, and a, one of the gals in the wedding party met me at the door and said, I have been looking all over for you. Would you please have your husband give me my shoes? I want to go home. And I was glad to do it. And in the car we got, and I said, You cannot drive, Russell. I don't know how many drinks you've had because I've been out in the car, but I know you've had too many. That made me feel guilty, too, that I didn't know how many drinks he had. You know, I should have known that. And he said, you are not driving my car. And he got in, and there was still a blizzard, and he got out on the road, and there's not a whole lot of cars out at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is what it was now. Uh, and the ones that are out there are probably in the same state he was because they were, we were on the wrong side of the road, but so were they. So we got by quite a few cars that way. And through the stoplights, went through four or five stoplights, 
And every one of them said stop when we went through them. And finally I said, Russell, the next stoplight you come to, you're going to let me drive or you're going to let me out. Well, he liked the second idea better. So the next stoplight we got to was green and he stopped and he let me out. And I thought, he'll be back. Guess what? I'm 60 miles from home in a blizzard, have on a long dress, a fur, a little beaded bag with a lipstick, a comb, cigarettes. I smoked now. I'm getting wicked. See, Russell would drink at me and I'd smoke at him and we would just play these wicked games. And not one red cent. I went into a filling station and made a phone call. Two friends of ours in where we lived, 60 miles away, members of our congregation. And I think at this point, it would be wise for me to interject that to the 1,800 people in our congregation, Russell was the Pope. He could do no wrong. Whatever he said was gospel. You know, he could have told those people the Pope was a Methodist and they'd have believed him and they'd have notified the Vatican. <laughs> and that's the way it was. And so I talked to these people and they said, um, well, where is Pastor? That was his name, Pastor. And I said, well, he went home. Well, why did he? Well, he was drunk. Oh, my goodness, poor pastor. We'll come and get you. It's the least we can do for him. So they came and got me. By the time they got there, I had been talking to this young boy who had lent me the dime to make the call and had a pretty good conversation with him. I thought, you know, this is the first person that's talked to me like I was normal since I don't remember when. Maybe I need to talk to these friends on the way home. Tell them what's really happening. So I did, all the way home. The lady, who is still a very dear friend of mine, was crying. The man was angry. And we got home, and there was Russell's car in the driveway. And the man said, if our pastor were as drunk as you said he was, he would never have gotten home. Goodbye. We'll see you in the morning. So in the morning, for early service, we had two services, 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock. And between the two services, I always baked things on Saturday, and people would drop in for coffee at the parsonage. And these two people were two that always came. So it was coffee time at the parsonage, and in walked these two friends that had picked me up last night. And Paul took me over to the side and said, we're going to have to do something about you. Pastor can't take much more of this. And I said, what did he tell you? And he told me the ridiculous things he had told him. And I decided I wasn't going to say anything to anyone anymore. Outside my home. Inside my home. I'll tell you what. Not one calm moment. And if you recall, we now have eight children there. Two are off to college. But those are the two that I always thought if they were home, they could have helped. Now, I know now they couldn't. 
None of us were going to fix this. My oldest son, at one point, uh, I took him and I shook him. And I said, Daniel, 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 can't you see what's happening here? And he said, yeah, you're shaking the liver out of me. (laughs) And that's all that was happening. And that bothered me. I was going to make those children see what was happening. I had no control over anybody outside. They all thought that the cheese was off my cracker and they weren't listening to me for nothing. They were tolerating me. And I was no longer talking to them about anything except superficial things. But I wanted my children to understand. And I wondered why they didn't. I'm going to give you one little story that might help you understand why they didn't. Those of you in Al-Anon probably know why they didn't. Because I didn't know I was sick. My behavior was very, very sick. I used to drag Russell upstairs after he'd pass out at night in this huge mansion of a parsonage we had. I would stay up until whatever hour it happened to be when he passed out and drag him upstairs and put him in bed. Most nights, I would get him to the first landing and he would stiffen up and slide back down again and laugh at me. Now, what do you suppose I did standing on that landing? I preached him a sermon in very loud words and made all kinds of threats, none of which I ever carried out, and woke all the children, and they laid in their beds like this, saying, Poor Dad. And I didn't know why my children didn't understand what was happening. They knew what was happening to Mom. My youngest son was confirmed in May of 1974. We always have a big confirmation party. There are three big days in the lives of our children. Their baptism, their confirmation, and their marriage. And confirmation's a big one. Timothy was being confirmed by his father in a group of 40-some young people. Now, we had 50 people coming to dinner. And a month before, Russell had bought eight cases of beer and about 12 gallons of wine and had set them downstairs in the cellar. We didn't have any kind of liquor cabinet would help anymore. We had a cellar. I was busy cooking the day before confirmation, and my older son came up and said, Mom, there is no beer, and uh, there is no wine. And I said, well, who opened it all? And he looked me in the eye and said, I don't know, Mom, but it doesn't matter who opened it. It's who drank it that matters. And I knew what he was saying to me. My behavior was such that my children thought I had the drinking problem. I was the one that woke them with the shouting every night. And I was the one that was totally obsessed with another person's problem 
that I was insane. I didn't know there was anything else I could do. Well, anyway, after that party, Russell left the next day for a doctor advised vacation in South Carolina with his brother. The doctor felt he needed to get away and get some rest. Well, he got rest in Kentucky and in Tennessee, and he never knew he was any of those places, but that's his story. That day, I decided I had to get out. And I think those of you in Al-Anon will understand that what my son had said was one of the things that made me make that decision. That, you know, no matter what I do or what I say, this is what my kids are going to think, and I won't have it. The man I had loved, the man I had born eight children for, I now felt I hated. And I didn't like to feel that way. I wanted, not only did I hate him, I wanted my kids to hate him and thought it was their duty to hate him. And if they weren't going to hate him, I was going to get out of there. So I went to a lawyer, not that lawyer we had the wedding for. There were seven lawyers in our town. Six of them were Lutherans. I went to the other one. Because any of the Lutheran ones would have put me away. Taken care of me till pastor got home. And I talked to him. About, I said I wanted a divorce. And he said, no, 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 you, you really don't. And I said, oh, yes, I do. He said, well, now, listen, this is not going to be in the papers. It's not going to be on the radio. This is going to blow this town up. And I said... Hey, I know that. I've known for a long time there's going to be a big explosion, and I'm going to be in the middle of it, but it's time for it to happen. I can't wait for it any longer. He said, don't, don't get a divorce. I said, well, okay, uh, Frank, a separation? No, 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 don't do that either. I said, I'm, I'm getting out of here, taking the three little kids, and I'm getting out of here. He said, well, I understand that. He said, let me talk to Russell when he gets back. He said, um, let's just get, we'll have him sign some papers. He'll give you some support money till we get this worked out. He said, Russell is an alcoholic. And I thought, good, I'm glad somebody's calling him nasty names except me, you know. And he said, my father was an alcoholic. There's help for him. I said, there's no help for Russell. I've offered him every kind of help there is. There is no help for Russell. And he said, yes, there is. Let me talk to him. Have him call me when he gets back. I said, okay. I got in the car and I thought, that's the first thing I did on my own without asking Russell's permission for myself, by myself, responsible thing I have done and I don't know how long I wonder what else I can do before Russell gets home and I thought of this little brown paper envelope that I had received some time back had a lot of literature in it I had opened it up read through it real well because I thought there'd be something in there telling me how to make Russell stop drinking and when there wasn't I'd put it away but I remembered where it was, and I went home and I got that out. And it was all Al-Anon material. And it listed a bunch of meetings here, there, and everywhere. And I chose one, 15 miles from home, 
and was high as a kite thinking I'm doing something all by myself, all for myself. I'm going to be okay. But if I go 15 miles away and pass up three or four meetings on the way, then nobody will know me, see. I don't know why I cared if anybody knew me. I was ready to leave, and, but I didn't want anybody to know me. Well, I chose that meeting. There were three people from our congregation there who done the same thing. In Illinois, if you want to go to an AA or an Al-Anon meeting where nobody knows you, go in your hometown. There won't be a soul you know there. Well, they opened with readings from this lovely little one-day-at-a-time book. And I thought, boy, that sounds nice. And they read a little prayer. They called the Serenity Prayer, and I thought, I know that prayer. It's up on my bulletin board at home. It was. I have the faintest idea what it meant, but it sounded good to me. It was one of my favorites. And I thought, well, maybe I belong in this group. Then they asked if there were any newcomers. And there were four of us. This was a big group. They said, ask if any of them had anything they wanted to say. There was one. And I monopolized that whole meeting. And I talked, and I cried, and I said, now tell me what to do about it. You know, please tell me what to do about it. And they cried. And I can't tell you what it meant to me to be sitting there with those people. And some of them were crying. And they were hugging me. And they were telling me, don't make any decisions. Come to meetings. Get well enough to make a decision that you're not making in this kind of a state of mind. We won't tell you what decision to make. We want to ask you to come and get well. And they gave me that little blue book. Little blue books are not free literature in Al-Anon. There are one thing we charge for. But the lady that led that meeting said, I want you to have this book. It's a gift from me. And I thought that was wonderful. I went home and put it in a drawer. I love books. I treasure books. I didn't want it to get dirty. And then Russell called. Hi, how are you? And I said, I'm more sober than you. And that's about how our conversations went, you know. He said, well, I got to Jean's today. And I said, well, that's good. I said, but before, I thought, now before he says anything, I'm going to let him know what's going on in my life for a change. And he's not going to believe me because I've made all these crazy threats for so many years. But I'm going to tell him, and I'm going to tell him so fast he can't interrupt me, so I'm starting with the lawyer, and I'm going on and on and on. And then as soon as he says, and I said, and when you come home, you need to go to Frank, and you need to sign some. He said, I'm not coming home. I said, what do you mean you're not coming home? He said, I am not coming home. I said, not till when? He said, not ever. And I said, but you're my husband. You're the father of these children. I'm not coming home. I said, well, you're the pastor of this church. I'm not coming home. I said, well, you can't just not come home. And he said, oh, yes, I can. I just resigned. And I said, but we're living in the parsonage. We have to have some place to live. And blah, blah, blah. And on and on I'm going. And finally he says, you cannot get blood out of a turnip. Good night. 
Well, now I realized that it was true. And I thought, okay, I need to change my plans. And guess what? The next morning, one of these beautiful people from that Al-Anon group called me and said, Barbara, I hope we'll see you again next Tuesday. And if you'd like to call me or talk to me about anything, please do that. And I said, I really appreciate that, but I won't need Al-Anon, thank you. I'm not going to be living with a drunk anymore. Well, we gathered up everything in that big house, everything that was Russell's and a lot of things that were other people's and had a three-day garage sale. And I moved with my three youngest children to Cincinnati, Ohio, where my sister lived to start a new life. Now, we never did do anything legal. We never did go back to a lawyer, neither did Russell. We just parted. I went to Cincinnati, lived in a little shack down on the river, rat and roach infested. I went on welfare. That was tough, but you do it if you're going to feed your kids, you feed them any way you can. Got my kids enrolled in school. Got a job. And was going to make things better. Got a job in dentistry. First job I applied for. Still in dentistry. And I love it. And we were getting along pretty well. The kids were happy. And it was tough for the kids. They had come from this denial home up on the hill, this mansion where everything was supposed to be beautiful and were well-dressed and top-notch kids in school to going to Cincinnati and being those kids on welfare down by the river. But they were happy. We had an argument in that little shack. We got in a circle and held hands and said, We're all we've got, God. We're all we've got. And there were hugs and kisses all around, and one day there was a knock on the door. And there stood Russell. Now, it had been nine weeks since I had seen Russell. And in my illness, I was hoping that Russell was really in big trouble someplace. So that somebody else would find out what it was really like to live with Russell. And there he stood and he looked pretty good. And I said, what do you want? He said, I'd like to see my children. And I'm going to tell you something I had in that house. We had a caricature made of Russell at uh, one of these places we were going while we were still putting on airs and acting like everything was all right. And uh, he had his collar on. And it's really quite a lovely caricature. I still have it. Uh, And in the little cloud at the side it says I'm not a father I have eight kids that was hanging over my toilet in Cincinnati and but I wasn't sick within five minutes I had let him in and he showed me a little card had these twelve wonderful little ideas on there 
I read those. I said, that, that sounds great. He said, well, you know, I've been uh, for help, and uh, I'm sober now. And I did it through all those steps. I worked all those steps. I said, that's wonderful. He said, so I want to come back now. I took him back. And in my illness, thought now everything was all right. But he wasn't working. And that got to me, because I wasn't getting welfare anymore either. If you have a man in the house, you don't get it. And I called John as soon as I said, Russell's back, so you'll have to take me off the welfare rolls. But I still got food stamps. And Russell wasn't working. And so I'd nag him about that a little. Like if I had dinner ready, I'd call the kids to dinner and he'd come waddling in and I'd say, Hey, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. I did not call you. (laughs) After what you did. Now, this is my worst illness. I had the after what you did worse than anybody you'll ever heard of. So... I'd say, go out and get a job. And you know what he told me? He said that this group he belonged to had told him to take it easy. (laughs) Whoopee! Well, he'd come and go and come and go. I'd kick him out and he'd come back. I got to where... It was the kids that said, Mother, do what you want, but please, take him back or kick him out. I don't like not knowing when I'm coming home from school, whether Dad's home or whether he's gone, so I decided on kick him out. He was gone for a week. I came home one Monday from work, and there he was standing at the door, and I said, What are you doing here? I thought you were in Idaho looking for a job. He said, Well, I came back for a meeting. I said, Small group, all the way from Idaho to Cincinnati. And he said, Well, yeah, there's another group, too, I thought maybe you'd like to go to. And I said, Oh, there he is. And he said, Yeah, it's called Al-Anon. I said, I know all about that. I've been there. He said, well, wouldn't you like to go? I said, well, what time is the meeting? I need to get out of my uniform. He said, it's Thursday. And this is Monday. I said, come on in. Now, from Monday to Thursday, we had planned to renew our marriage vows. Because I said, I feel like I'm living in sin every time I let you in this house. Our relationship was so dead. And in four days, he courted and wooed me, and I was going to marry him. Then we went to the meeting. You guys nearly blew that. I went into my Al-Anon meeting, and you know what they talked about? Detachment. (laughs) Then I got out in the car and... Russell said, how'd you like that meeting? I said, well, uh, 
be okay if we weren't planning to renew our marriage vows, but they're talking about detachment. I don't need that. That's how little I understood about detachment. I couldn't live without it, boys and girls. But I didn't know what detachment was then. thought that was a pretty tacky thing to say. So I didn't go for a while. And I kept on with the after what you did. And then one time, one day, I decided we don't have any social life. Sometimes I don't even have money to buy oil for the furnace. And these meetings are free. And we can go there together. I think I'll go back. Anyway, I kind of like the look on the faces of some of those people there. They look pretty good. I want to say something to you people. UAAs. Before I say anything else, we have a group in Montgomery that we just started. It's been going about, on for about 15 or 16 months now, where AAs and Al-Anons meet together. Officially, it's an AA group, but it is a discussion group. On the books, it's an AA group. And we have more fun, we Al-Anons, letting you AAs know that, hey, we've got a program, too. How surprised they were that we had the steps. And how surprised they were that our program was for us, that we don't go there to talk about you. We have beginner's meetings for that because... Ladies and gentlemen, there are a few meetings where people have to get some things off their chest. But that doesn't happen in our big knees. We're there to grow. In our beginner's meetings, we teach those people that alcoholism is a disease, that you did not cause it, that you cannot cure it. And I want to tell you, while I'm telling you that, that one of the best things I learned in my beginner's group in Cincinnati was that Russell hurt. That's right. That's one of the best things I learned. Because I didn't think he hurt. I thought, here he'd done everything he very well wanted to and he's coming back and getting all the gravy again and everybody's patting him on the back because he's sober, big deal. You know, and that's all he expected out of himself on any given day was, hey, I didn't drink today. And I say, well, you didn't do anything else either. And I was sick. But that's why I interrupted myself here was to tell you, I, I will put our program up against AA's program any day because we're every bit as ill as you are. But you have one thing up on us. You can take that very first giant step in a minute, you can put down that boost. We don't have that first giant step that keeps reminding us we're on our way, we're on our way, we're on our way, we didn't drink today. It takes us a little longer to recognize some of these things that tell us we're on our way, we're getting better. Well, I knew that these people in this group that I decided to go back to were on their way someplace. I liked them. 
And I went back with Russell one time because it's someplace we could go together. And when I came out of that meeting, I was very upset when I went. Russell said, well, how did you like the meeting? And I told him, and I need to tell you first why I told him what I did. After that meeting was over, I went up to one of the gals that in the two meetings I'd been to in Cincinnati, I just knew would understand everything I told her and would tell me the right thing. I just knew it. I knew it by the way she looked at me. I knew it by some of the absolutely brilliant things she said in the meetings. And when I say brilliant, I mean there is nothing more brilliant in the Al-Anon program than the simplicity of it. Reads easy and it works hard. But the healthier you get, the easier it works. And I had said to her, Julie, I just had an awful time at home tonight. And she said, well, what happened? I said, well, Russell said he had the colossal nerve to say, I don't really think you've forgiven me. And she said, oh, and what did you do? And she said, I said, well, I told him, I listed for him all the things I had forgiven him for, plus I'm supporting him, plus, 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 plus. And she said, then what? And I said, I went upstairs and cried. And she said, and what did he do? I said, I don't know, I guess he watched TV. And she said, well, I suppose he would. He probably felt better. Why did you do that to yourself? And I said, wait a minute, Julie. She said, why did you do that to yourself? She was trying to make me feel responsible for that fiasco. Can you believe it? And I said, well, what do you, what do you think I should have done? She said, well, we don't give advice, Barbara, but I can just tell you what I'd have done. I'd have said, I'd have told my husband that I was sorry he felt that way. And I thought, big deal. So when I'm out in the car and Russell's saying, how'd you like the meeting tonight? I said, uh, I liked it real well. I, I really did. I'm, I'm going to continue to come back because I think they have some things that can really can help me. He said, well, I sure am glad because I don't think you've forgiven me. And I said, I'm sorry you feel that way. And he's never said that since. Now, I'm going to more of these meetings and learn more of those cute little sayings. I'll tell you what. And I did. And I learned, let go and let God. And I learned, think. And I learned something that was very important to me. How important is it? Because... I was to a point in my life where everything was a crisis. Where I expected no good to come of anything. My disease was spiritual too. I continued to pray. As I had prayed through the alcoholic years and informed God of everything Russell was doing and asking him when he was going to make him quit. I never once prayed to God that I would, you know, to help me discover what was happening to me, 
to lead me somewhere where I could be helped. I would, God had better punish Russell and he had better do it pretty soon. And I would go to Russell and I would say, aren't you frightened to death to stand in that pulpit every Sunday morning? You know, the Lord says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. That aren't you scared to death? And he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I'd say, when, when, when? And I thought I still had a relationship with God. I had turned God into someone who loved me, pokey as he was, but surely must hate Russell. How could he otherwise? And why didn't he do something about it? Why did he do nothing about it? There was an AA program, there was an Al-Anon program, and they were both offered to both of us, and we did not want them. The Al-Anon program is God's greatest gift to me. I want to repeat that because I mean it. God's greatest single gift to me, aside from his son, Jesus Christ, is the Al-Anon program. And I thank him right now for it. I learned what to do with the thing that was destroying me most quickly, resentments. I learned that I could forgive myself and that I could forgive and forget with Russell. I could say to Russell, I forgive you. But something would happen and it would all come back like it was happening right now. And through prayer and through this program and through learning to be good to myself, I really got rid of those resentments because they were killing me. And they were killing any chance Russell and I had of having a good relationship again. And we do. Yesterday, Russell just got home from Florida where he was with my mother. We've had how many weddings since that blow up? We've only had one child married then and we've got six married now. We've had five weddings. We've had 13 grandchildren. And I'll tell you what, every time one of those wonderful beautiful things happens in our life, I think, what would this be like if AA and Al-Anon hadn't taught us what love is, what forgiveness is, that we're okay, we had a problem, that we were powerless over, but there is help. When I came in this program, I was a plowed field. I didn't know who I was. I certainly wasn't anybody I had ever been before. And as long as that field remained plowed and nothing was put into it, more weeds grew and more weeds grew. And I came into the Al-Anon program and I found here you beautiful people Some of you would plant seeds, some of you would pull weeds, and pretty soon I had the most beautiful garden that you had planted. 
and I thank you for it, and I love you for it, and I want you to know that whoever said that you cannot make a silk purse out of a sow's ear never met up with you folks. Thank you.